the idea that we can be easily traumatized, that's new. And I think that's primarily cultural. And I don't even know if cultural is the right word. It's basically a matter of suggestion. Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast from Lost Debate, all about how we get better, faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, the CEO of Lost Debate and co-host of this podcast. And this show is all about how those of us, you know, my, me and my co-hosts who've been veterans of K-12 education, we all ran or still run high-performing schools. We're either superintendents or school principals. And a lot of us have been applying those lessons that went into creating great schools. We've been applying those lessons to life generally, whether it's sports, hobbies, parenting, relationships, managing companies. And this podcast is all about extending that learning. Like how do we take that great learning from the K to 12 space and apply it elsewhere? And today I, along with my co-host Doug Lamov, interview a guy named Dr. George Bonanno, who's a professor of clinical psychology at Teachers College at Columbia University and the author of the wonderful and provocative book titled The End of Trauma. And Dr. Bernano argues that we're more resilient than we think we are and that we're getting the conversation around trauma wrong. Now, I'm going to leave it to him to explain this thesis. It's definitely going to challenge some views that you have. It's definitely going to challenge the prevailing and dominant conversation we have around trauma in the society. I won't say much more. Let's get right into it. All right, George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, George, you give a pretty detailed history of where this concept of PTSD comes from, right? There's the actual clinical definition of PTSD, and then there's the way it's kind of thrown around in our vernacular these days. Can you just give us a, a, the evolution of this term? I think you basically start pre-World War One and take us through where we are today. Sure. Well, I mean, PTSD has always been or the idea of trauma, lasting psychological trauma, has always been a kind of a, a difficult concept for culture. And it really stems from the military primarily because once you say that war can also, war can do a lot of nasty things to people, which makes it hard to fight wars and recruit soldiers. And once you throw in psychological trauma, it just makes it all the more difficult. And it leads to all kinds of crazy questions that we're still dealing with. It's a bit of a Pandora's box of, is this really trauma or are you just traumatized because you don't, saying you're traumatized because you don't want to do something? But really, the wars drew a lot of public attention to trauma, the two great wars of the 20th century. And then the Vietnam War in the U.S. led to a lot of psychological casualties. Finally, in 1980, the diagnosis was formalized in, in the form of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That was a very welcome diagnosis because it was obvious that some People were traumatized seriously, and, 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 and many soldiers were traumatized, and there was no way to treat them without the diagnosis. But what happened after that has taken on a life of its own. And as I, as I mentioned before, it's a bit of a Pandora's box, because initially there was a tremendous amount of interest in the term, interest in the idea that we now have this diagnosis, we can now treat people. And there was a lot of research, a lot was written about it, books were written, and eventually those things trickle into the general public. People began to read books about PTSD and trauma. But those books were kind of horrifying in a way. Look at these things that can happen to you. And we're, as human beings, we're wired for threat. You know, our brains, our, our, our mind-body system is wired to detect and be aware of threat. And that's, you know, wired, I'm using the term loosely, but we have the biological equipment to do that. So people pay, were paying attention to this PTSD, this thing can happen. And gradually over time, it took on more and more of a life of its own. Then you move into the internet age and things like trauma, PTSD, lasting harm, these things get clicks. People are, you know, people find it hard not to read them. You don't get a lot of clicks if you say, you know, this horrible thing happened and everybody's basically okay. You know, in Ukraine right now, the, the citizens of Ukraine, they're doing really well. You know, that's not going to get a click as, as much as it is. Look, what's, look at how bad, how, what kind of bad shape they're in. So this is a natural consequence of all these things. And so, you know, media attention, people beside themselves unable to really not read about trauma and PTSD. And it's just led to a kind of a snowballing where now there's a tendency to think of almost everything as trauma. You talk about how there are over 600,000 possible symptom combinations for PTSD 
And the current approach, the dominant approach, is to think of this term and in, in what you describe as an essentialist approach. Like either you are or you are not exhibiting symptoms of PTSD. And you say basically people are equating symptoms of PTSD with having PTSD. And instead you argue for something that's a little bit more flexible and has, you know, more fuzzy boundaries. Can you can you explain what's like the the ideal approach from your perspective versus how we're treating this right now? Yeah, sure. Well, that in the traditional or the, the conventional diagnostic manual, the DSM, which everybody knows, the DSM actually says I mean, it's a, there's there's a little bit of a I think a, a inappropriate use of terms. I say that carefully because uh, it's not an easy thing to do, but the the DSM defines what a traumatic event would be and then decide defines the symptoms. But unfortunately, I think it was unfortunate to call these events traumatic events. And I prefer the term potentially traumatic events because it leads people to think I've just been through a trauma and therefore I am traumatized. And one of the unfortunate things is that, I mean, this is just life, but it's unfortunate how it's been misinterpreted. After being exposed to what the DSM says is a traumatic event, what I say is a potentially traumatic event, after being exposed to one of those events, most people will be pretty upset. These are horrific things. They're violent, life-threatening, you know, things where you it really activates a very, very strong primitive uh, stress response because you're in one is in danger. And those initial reactions can last anywhere uh, from a few hours to a few days, sometimes up to a few weeks in most people. And in most people, they do abate. And so what, what happens, though, is when people have those initial reactions and they've been through an event that's labeled a, a traumatic event, they then think, I now am traumatized. I have PTSD. And many, many people ask me about this all the time. You know, people that I know, you've been through one of these events and, um, and now I'm having nightmares about it. I've had two nightmares about it. Does that mean I have PTSD? And in fact... All of that is within what, what normally happens. This is a kind of a normal reaction to a very abnormal event. But as I said, for most people, we know now that, that those symptoms abate. They go away. They run their course. And only for a small percentage do they have any lasting da- cause any lasting damage. And just quickly, could you give us like some numbers behind that? When you say most, what does the data tell us? Like what, what, what kind of numbers do we see? Well, the percentage of people that develop lasting PTSD ranges from about 5% to about 30%. But 30% is, is really the absolute ceiling, and it's pretty rare. Usually it's around 5 to 10% of people who go through something really very serious. So then say you, you can say 90, 95% will not experience any kind of chronic difficulties afterwards. I find that fascinating. You know, you read a lot now about how people have been through there's a lot of reference to what happened to people generally and maybe young people specifically during the pandemic as being traumatizing and that kids are traumatized. I, I was just going to read you, if you don't mind, a, a quote from your book, sure. which, by the way, you know, just recommendation to listeners. It's an outstanding book, The End of Trauma. But you say there are other characteristics that have been shown to have an empirical relationship to resilience, which, you know, let's, that's the ability to experience a traumatic experience and come out okay, right? One of the best known is support from other people. Another is optimism and, relatedly, the belief in one's ability to cope well. People showing resilient outcomes also tend not to search for meaning after potential trauma, but rather to focus on problem solving. They're able to use a range of coping and emotional regulation strategies. I'm just curious to know how you respond to a lot of the conversation about young people being traumatized and maybe the potential that, presuming that people have been traumatized, can it be counterproductive to helping them respond to it? You know, you talk about optimism and the belief in one's ability to cope well. How does it affect people when we, do you have concerns about how it affects people when we tell them that we think that they've been traumatized or that the events that they've been through are traumatizing? Yes, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's a very important how we frame things for people. So what, what's happening now, and particularly young, young, among younger people, and I, I don't know exactly why that is, but there is a tendency to call everything unpleasant a trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply, I mean, you know, you, what you can't control language, right? And so even language- just terrible, of, right? Even just terrible yeah, is not trauma, e- right? Yeah. Even terrible. And even the pandemic, the, you know, the pandemic was not a traumatic event or a potentially traumatic event for, for almost, for very, for most people, it was not a traumatic event. It was a chronic stressor, chronically stressful event that did 
you know, take its toll on most of us. You know, it wore us out, but it wasn't traumatic with, with the exception of a, a, a smaller group of people for whom it was who went through violent and life-threatening things, you know. But the idea that, you know, in part it's a, it's a language use, you know, it's like just that was really traumatic. Wow. You know, that's a, a, a way to use language and we can't control language, particularly American English. American English morphs quicker than any other language. I have a friend visiting from France right now, and they said they love English because every noun can be a verb. And, you know, it's really true. But, you know, the, the danger here by calling, you know, things that are, are not normally potentially traumatic, traumatic, the danger is then that we completely negate the term for any practical use. And we also, it's, I think it's quite harmful to people who are generally traumatized. So, you know, and there, there are some consequences. And for example, I teach a large class on trauma and I tell the students on the day one, I will not give you, be giving you trigger warnings in this class. And then I have them read a paper that shows that trigger warnings actually, not only do they not work, they tend to make people more anxious. There's another series of studies that we can point to that shows that the broader somebody's definition of what they think a trauma is, the more likely they are to get highly anxious over more things, right? So there's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy to it because we think, you know, I'm, you know, the way I've, I've thought about this in the past, you know, in, this, in the 60s and 70s, there was the, the human potential movement. And I think right now we're in kind of the human limitation movement. There's an emphasis on looking at things in terms of what harm they can do us or what harm they've done us. And that it's important not to negate that in, in, in many cases, but I think it does actually uh, handicap us in some ways by focusing so much. And, you know, suggestion is very powerful. So if somebody is told they're traumatized, you know, if I can go on a little bit here, there's a tremendous interest or belief in hidden traumas right now. And it's not really based in, in really anything scientific at all. When people have been exposed to a potentially traumatic event and they are seriously traumatized, they know it. It's not hidden. They remember it, right? So, but the thing is with the term, as you brought up before, the term traumatic, once an event is labeled traumatic, rather than say potentially traumatic, then anyone who has experienced one of those events and is reminded of those events you know, say when you were, you know, 15 years ago, you were in an automobile accident, didn't think about it much after that, apart from, you know, the, the, the first few weeks afterwards, you took care of it. And, you know, 15 years later, you're, you're finding yourself anxious for no reason, or you're finding yourself depressed. And a, and a therapist or somebody else tells you, well, look, you've been traumatized and it, you, you have this hidden trauma that's explaining your symptoms. And that's a, that's a very easy way to kind of explain what one is experiencing now, but it's actually not accurate. If the person got over the event in the past, they got over the event. It's not a hidden trauma. It's an event that, that was unpleasant. And there's research to support this, actually. There's what's called epidemiological research. So what I hear you saying is that maybe, oh, let's assume it's out of, you know, out of best intentions. People presume that what you call chronically stressful incidents, difficult, extremely difficult things that happen in people's lives, people tend to presume that that inherently causes trauma. They tend to look for trauma, and that can often be counterproductive to people who are struggling to get back to normal from, or get back to thriving from challenging events. And so the response is often counterproductive. One of the points you make in the book that I think is so good is just that, you know, there's a lot we don't know about what works in people getting over stressful events or trauma. But if you could just sketch out a little bit of what, what is productive, I'm thinking particularly about schools here, but it could really be in any setting. What are productive things to do when we know that people have been through chronically stressful events or challenging events? Okay, well, there, there are challenging events and then there's chronically stressful circumstances, we should say, because that's we're talking a longer period of time. So let's start with the chronically stressful circumstances. Chronic stressors, what they do is they wear us out. You know, our, our, our stress response system you know, their biological capacity to respond to stress that most of us develop pretty well across the course of our lives. You know, we're born with the ingredients and we develop a pretty good stress response system. That system is designed for acute life events. It's designed for one-off events that happen and we get through them and they're done. And we're pretty good at dealing with those kind of events, actually, particularly, you know, the... Uh, Difficult, but not necessarily potentially traumatic stresses. We're good at dealing with that. When something endures, 
for a matter of weeks or months, like say the COVID pandemic was going on, you know, it waxed and waned, but it went on for months and months and months, then a little respite, then months and months and months. That wears us out. And when, what, it, what happens is it depletes our biological capacity to respond effectively. So then you, be, because our biological response, our capacity is chemical, right? And eventually, not only are we, do we sort of drain that system, but we also, it becomes dysregulated. Different systems start crossing with paths with each other when they're not necessarily designed to. And then you get kind of physical breakdown, you get psychological breakdown, people get worn out, they start having physical symptoms that for with not really any clear explanation, those are stress response systems like MUPS, medically unexplained symptoms is a consequence of chronic stress. Just back pain, sinus pain, digestion type problems, those things happen. And our capacity to continually to deal with stress is is lessened. So, you know, that's unpleasant and it's, it's not really going to, you know, lasting harmful. It, it's not going to be a lasting harm in many cases, but it's unpleasant. And it, it can, you know, kind of set us off on a kind of a, a unhealthy path, right? And as, But as long as we sort of pull out of that stressor, eventually we can work at getting back on track. So I think in terms of, helping people deal with these things, helping, you know, what schools might do. It's really focusing on the chronic stress, say, during the pandemic is is helping people find ways to to relax, to to feel joyous things, you know, to do things that are positive and, and in, enriching, you know. So in a school, I mean, I don't, I'm not an expert on schools, but I did survive raising two children, but that's about as far <laughs> as it goes. But, you know, there can be built-in parts of a day in schools that are just about having a good time or just about reminding the students that that things are can be good that they have each other you know there's support here and as much as as we can do that that i think would be really helpful and also i think keeping in mind that that the students are likely stressed out or likely a little exhausted you know they're likely a little bit depleted and so you know bear that in mind when we think about what what the nature of their workload should be same thing with adults in the workplace you know, I think there's the same kind of consideration. So you talk about this sort of staged approach of bereavement where it takes some time to understand whether and how any truly lasting permanent effects of trauma, what they even look like. So, you know, we talked about the K-12 setting, but, you know, we also have, you talk about 9-11. You know, I grew up in Staten Island where a lot of people that I grew up with either had family members, in some cases they they themselves were involved in the tragedy. And you have this really fascinating description of just how the public conversation around 9-11 evolved. And that there were there were all these claims made about how huge proportions of people were exhibiting PTSD. But you kind of had a different take on this. So explain a little bit about how that conversation evolved and and why we might be left with this impression that may be inaccurate based on the way that it was reported on. Yeah, I refer to that actually as the resilience blind spot. And it really happens pretty much any time in the, in the modern world anyway, in the sort of, you know, I'd say late 20th century world on, when any time there's a, there's a large-scale disaster, we tend to succumb to the, what I, this thing, the resilience blind spot. It happened during the COVID pandemic. So what happened during 9-11 was, you know, 9-11 was, of course, a riveting event, and it got everybody's attention. It got the whole world's attention, and it was confusing for people. It changed the ball game in a lot of ways. And early on, it was just a kind of confluence of, of factors. Um, there was a, a, an assumption that there would be widespread trauma, psychological casualties. You know, thousands of people perished in that, in that horrible day, but then many other people would have would have suffered bereavement and other responses, knowing the people that perished. And many other people would feel great deals, a great deal of anxiety and fear and uncertainty. All those things are kind of ingredients for traumatic stress, particularly in New York, but it turned out the rest of the country felt a, a lot of ongoing anxiety after 9-11, in part because, you know, in New York, when the planes began to fly over again, which I think was about a month after 9-11, if I'm, if I'm getting it right, I remember that to the to the to the moment I I was on the the campus of where where I teach the university and we saw planes fly over for the first time. Columbia University is in the flight path, and it was the first time since nine eleven a commercial flight was on the flight path, and you could see it in everybody's faces. 
this sense of relief in a sense. Things are moving back towards normal. You, they, the rest of the country didn't have that. All they knew is New York was, you know, a part of New York was destroyed and people flocked to New York for, for several years to see that, to go look at Ground Zero. So you have this kind of relatively intense event that does run its course. In New York, um, you know, the assumption was of widespread casualties. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Association, earmarked well over $100 million, which at that time was a, a lot more than it is now, um, you know, adjusted. And that was for free mental health services. People could get access to this money to create services, to, to receive services. And um, in the days after 9-11, national surveys were conducted. And not surprisingly, people ticked off a lot of trauma symptoms, nightmares, anxiety, riveted television. Those are completely natural responses. And I think it was in the majority, more than 50%. I, when I read that, I thought, well, why are there close to 40% who aren't doing that? Everybody, you would think, is doing that, right? And that led to these, then that fueled this idea that everybody is going to be traumatized. There were lots of media accounts, lots of government officials saying, you know, we're not equipped to handle the, the level of casualties that this is going to produce. And in fact, it didn't. You know, within a relatively short time, things began to abate in terms of mental health symptoms anyway. And the amount of people actually seeking treatment was far, far, far lower than anybody anticipated. They, people were not seeking treatment. And if you, I don't know if you remember this or not, there were ads in the subways about how you can see treatment, if, how, you can, how you can have treatment if you want. Don't, it's, don't worry. It doesn't mean you're weak. Go ahead and you know, do this. And people still weren't doing it. So this happened, and you know, by six months, the data showed that the level of, of these symptoms were, were very close to what they were before, before 9-11. Of course, there were psychological casualties. I want to make that clear. There were people who were generally traumatized, particularly people who were in the World Trade Center, particularly people right there, who you know, saw horrific things. Many people, we interviewed a lot of those people in my own research, who were in the towers and took a long time to get out of those towers and saw horrific things on their way out. So there were casualties, but again, most people would manage to get through this, and New York did as well. The same thing happened again, cycled through again at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. People were, again, making pronouncements of widespread mental health crisis beyond which we're going to be able to manage, and it didn't materialize. The data on COVID are particularly uh, interesting because within a year or so, people researchers like myself were able to conduct longitudinal studies by that point. And we were basically showing that it, the, the COVID pandemic was a lot like other major disasters and that the majority of people showed the resilient pattern. And then other people, some people did show lasting harm, but many people, most people did not. And so what is it about us as humans and our culture where we want to believe that we're more traumatized than we may be. Because it's not always been that way. Like, yeah, at least recently it's that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are coming back from World War One, which is, by any account, is a horrific, you know, if there ever was a trauma-inducing war, that's one of them. And, and basically we're told to suck it up, essentially, you know, for to, to be a little crass about it at that point. We're calling things like yeah. shell shock and stuff like that. We're under-diagnosing it. How did we get to the point where now we're over-diagnosing it and... Is this something innate in us or is this something external, cultural? You know, you talk about the rise of television, for example, and the post-Vietnam culture, for example. Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea of lasting psychological trauma, I'm going to say probably has all, always existed. Or not, not, I should say lasting psychological trauma has always existed. I'm, I'm going to say probably because it's hard to say based on the historical record. But the idea that we can be easily traumatized, that's new. And I think that's primarily cultural. And I don't even know if cultural is the right word. It's basically a matter of suggestion, I think, that, you know, we, and we, it's, it's like so many aspects of our modern culture now is that we're trying to, to adapt to the dramatic influx of information in our daily lives. We're bombarded with things all day long. When something happens in the past, not too distant past, you would read about it in the morning, and that would be it for the day. You would get the story. People would talk about it. Maybe not. They'd get on with their lives. Now you read about something, and you check the media, either the, the print media, the 
the um, online media or the way people are posting and talking about it on social media, within an hour, you've already got new information or you've got the same story respun a different way and somebody else giving a different viewpoint on it. We're all trying to adapt to that. And it's wreaked havoc, as, as of course we know, in, in the political world, et cetera. But it's also meant now that we are constantly focused on these potentially traumatic events in a way that we are not yet able to deal with, I think. And George, there's a good example of this that's kind of absurd, which is, as we're recording this, uh, a little over a week ago, my favorite football team, the Buffalo Bills, had this event that happened on the field where Jamar oh, yeah. Hamlin was hit in the chest and had a cardiac arrest on the field. Ever since then, most people in my life know I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. And they're coming up to me saying, hey, it's okay to be traumatized. Like, And I'm just like, why am I traumatized? I didn't get hit <laughs> on the, in the chest. I have never yeah. been hit in the chest. I've never had anything like this happen to me. Yeah, it's terrible, and I'm wishing him a speedy recovery, but there's absolutely nothing about that that should have traumatized me uniquely, yet I'm being told I should be. It's, it's yeah, really strange. Yeah, yeah, I agree with everything you said, that it's you can be concerned, and of course, you know, when you see the way this event, pretty horrific event, was presented in the media, captured live, it's it's kind of shocking, and it, it it's, it's a, a real cause for concern, but that's very different than being traumatized by it. And you would, to be traumatized by it, you would have to have experienced it as violent and life-threatening and really a, a challenge to your own integrity as a human being, your own physical and mental integrity. And it's hard to believe that that event is as difficult it was for for the, the the person in question, it's that it would do that to any you know the broader public, right? Yeah, maybe his teammates at most, right? Right, perhaps his teammates because they're still in the game, and so the the idea that they could then reframe how they think about it that could be uh, psychologically very difficult for them. But I think I hear you even hear you saying that you know even in the worst situations, the rate at which people become traumatized by really difficult events is you know thirty percent is the boundary. And so I, th I think one of the things that's most fascinating about your research is, is sort of the normalcy of human resilience, which is that like when e even though events are bad, that people suffer and it takes a while, but for the most part, they get back to where they, you know, to where they were. That, and, the, and you describe in the book what you call the resilience trajectory, which is the sort of normal path or what we know about the normal path that people take back from difficult events. It doesn't mean they don't suffer. It doesn't mean they don't struggle, but they get back to normal in due time. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about this idea of the resilience trajectory, what we know about it, what it looks like, you know, what are the key aspects of resilience as you understand it? Yeah, sure. This has really come out of the work I've been doing for about 30 years now. And well, simply what it is, is that we, it's quite simple, really. We just follow people after something has happened. And I don't mean we stalk them in the street, but we do as we track their mental health. We try to get people into our research studies as soon as possible after something happened. Sometimes we're able to actually have a data on people before something happened, if we're already tracking them for some other reason or some other large study is doing that. And we just follow their mental health over time. And, you know, we started doing that back in 1991. And what we found then, and we've continued to find now so many times, it's one of the, this is one of the most well-replicated phenomena in psychology, is that what we find is that most people, the majority, will show basically a stable trajectory of good health. They might, you know, have a little bit of variability in the first week or two. That's when this normal pattern happens where, you know, people get upset. It doesn't exclude people from being upset for a few weeks. But then they basically resume their normal life. They, they're able to concentrate. They're able to feel close to other people and function. And they'll just continue on like that for, for years unless something else major happens. And then it's a new, you know, new question. But we've done that. We've plotted this now. We plot different patterns that people show. We've done this, you know, initially we did it, whatever tools we had. Now we can use computational modeling to do it, more sophisticated tools and technology. But the results have pretty much been the same. And what we've looked at when we look at a broad range of studies, we find that on average, it's about two thirds of the, of the population will show that pattern. Some people will show other patterns where they might struggle a little bit longer and then return to, to, to wherever they were before. Then there's other people who might you know, struggle and not get do so well. And then, of course, other people who suffer lasting damage. 
But the two-thirds has really kind of become, I think, the golden number. That's what we see. And there was recently a big review of all the research during COVID. And what that they came to, which was kind of shocking in a way, was the exact same number during COVID. So COVID wasn't, in terms of, of, of the patterns people show, any different than what we saw before COVID. And this is, I think, now what I would say is what human beings do. We show this resilient pattern. So let's talk about parenting really quickly, because I think, you know, George, as you say, you're not a K-12 expert, but you, you have been a parent. Doug, you're a parent. So I th- actually think some of these lessons can transfer over to K-12 and in other areas. So you talk about the different traits and actions that correlate with resilient outcomes, and you're really careful to say that these aren't a tried and true playbook that are it's going to work every time you you're you're careful to say it's complicated but you talk about optimism about the future confidence in coping and willingness to think of threats as challenge so Doug this by the way reminds me of the conversation we had with the sports psychologist uh, the other day where you know for instance threats as challenge and optimism about the future these are things that help people overcome adversity at least in the sports area like when you're talking to your kids though, you know, let's, let's kind of walk through these and, and, and think about how to make these actionable. So how do you talk to your kids in order to build up these three, you know, sort of, I, th- I would say related mindsets and or strategies, optimism about the future, confidence and coping and willingness to think of threats as, as a, as challenge. That's the flexibility mindset as it leads to the resilience trajectory. Is that right? Yeah. So this is, there, there are two concepts that that I, I developed to try to explain how, how most people are resilient. What is it that we do? And one of them is the flexibility mindset, and the other one is called the flexibility sequence. So the mindset is really a way of thinking about the world and thinking about adversity. And it can be these three pieces, that optimism being that essentially the future will be okay. It usually always is okay, so it will be okay. Confidence are in our ability to cope, and basically most people have some ability to cope with things, so there, there's a confidence there. And then focusing on threats as challenges, and that's really asking yourself the question. I actually translated into questions, or statements, I should say, statements. The future will be okay, I have the tools, and uh, let me just focus on what I need to do. Let me get at the challenge here. You know, we, fo- we can focus on the threat for some time, but then we really need to start thinking about what do I need to do here? And those three pieces really are um, what the research shows are probably how we, how we do that, how they fit together. But you can also think of them in a broader conviction that I will be able to get through this difficulty. I will be able to adapt. I will be able to do what I need to do to get through it. And I was, I experienced this actually when uh, I was on a podcast related to um, a really difficult obstacle course race. And the fellow that interviewed me had mentioned that people that go through that race all feel that way afterwards. Like, I can do this. Like, if I can do this, I can do things. I can do other things. I'll be able to deal with it. And I think that's probably the way I would begin to think about this with, with my own children or other children. Not so much you have to be optimistic, you have to be confident in your abilities, but it's rather in terms of the broader idea that you will be able to get through this. And it's a way of thinking about it rather than than anything else. It's a conviction, you know, that if you think about being able to get through it, you're already halfway there. You get your mind on it. There's a really interesting phrase you use in the book. You talk about how flexibility does not simply happen, that it's not a passive process. And you say, say, although we often represent the idea of flexibility with images of some sort of pliable material, such as rubber or bamboo, that passively bends, humans do not simply bend. You say we bend ourselves. What I think I hear you saying is that one of the most useful things you can do for someone who is suffering or in the midst of trying to recover through resilience is to remind them that they're strong and that they have the capacity to deal with adverse circumstances. Is that, yeah. is that an accurate read on what you think the research tells us? Yeah, I, I, and I think it is. It definitely is. And, you know, it's difficult when, when really difficult things happen and we're upset, we tend to feel overwhelmed by it. And I often tell people, and I've told this, to, this is something I would tell anybody, my, my children or otherwise, my children are now adults, that if you focus on, you know, some remote point in the future where, you know, you think my life is really now, I can't function, my life is ruined, this event is ruining my life, it's kind of hard to see 
how you would actually get to that remote point. But if you just instead begin to think about what's happening now and what do I need to do now? What's the problem here? What is it that's, you know, I'm, I, I can't concentrate. Okay, that's the problem. Or is it that I've, I had a nightmare the other night. I don't want to have nightmares or I feel anxious right now. That's the problem right now. And when you focus on the problem right now, first have to think about it. What is it? We, you know, we have to do a little bit of work even there. And we start thinking about what is exactly happening now and what do I need to do about it? Then we begin to get everything rolling. Like then we begin to start thinking practically and thinking about how do I get past this event? And, and that's a really nice, it's a way to break it down. Yeah, you, you quote, I think it's Kahneman or Tversky in your book. You might remember who it was who said this. It was one of the two who said that pessimism is like an inherently inefficient and irrational act, meaning like you you anticipate some negative event in the future and you almost relive it every day until it happens and sometimes it never comes, right? So it's it's often not helpful, right? Just to have this constant anxiety for some future event. That if it comes, it comes, you deal with it. And oftentimes it doesn't come. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's so in, in talking about this, right? So you have this, this wonderful aside about how there's this ecologist named Crawford Stanley Buzz Holling, who is looking at how forests endured long periods of constant threats. And, and as you describe, you know, one key is like random and unpredictable events like fires, insect infestations, et cetera. And that's how a forest survives. And you, you basically use that as a transition to talk about humans are similar in a way. And as I'm reading this, I think there's like, it reminds me of this, this concept of anti-fragility that a lot of people have been talking about over the past 10, 20 years. Do you, do you see like a relationship between your work and, and the way that that concept is, is being talked about right now? To be perfectly honest, I don't really know what, what, People are saying about anti-fragility. That's a world that I don't really live in. You know, probably in some pop psychology books or somewhere, you know. it's um, So I don't know exactly what it means. But I think if I were to propose a, a, a way to think about life that might either be comparable or in some way uh, alternative to it, I would say that, that somewhat of the things that you had just said, that life is unpredictable and things happen and we can't prepare for everything. And sometimes things happen that really knock us off our feet. When that happens, we have to first kind of take stock of what's happening, and then we have to, to do the work of adapting to it. We have to adapt. And this is what we've seen that resilient people do. They believe they can adapt. They both believe they can adapt and they can actually do it. And the research we've done shows that most people actually, we were quite relieved, I have to admit, when we found this out, because this is this is what we are proposing was how people are resilient. And most people are able to use these tools. Most people are able to think about events in this sort of more goal-directed way once they get used, you know, first when when we're first something bad happens to us, it's natural to feel the threat of it. God, this is really bad. It's messing up my life. But at some point then we shift in our thinking towards, okay, I have to get on with my life. What do I need to do here? I didn't want this to happen, but it did. If we stay focused only on the threat, like how bad it is, the research supports this as well. We kind of become more and more passive to it. And it's easy to stay focused on the threat because we can. the threat is always there. And we can say, it's still there. Oh my God, I still feel lousy, or this is still happening. And it, what we need to do at that point is to begin to focus on moving past it. And that's when we, we, you know, we sort of start a ball rolling and then we get into the actual ways we do that. I find this, the whole conversation fascinating because in many ways, what you're saying is the concept of trauma has drifted as it's entered public discourse. And a lot of the things that the research tells us that we should do to help people overcome trauma are not necessarily aligned to what people say when they talk about responding to trauma in the public discourse. Just wondering, do you think of your research as controversial? Do people treat you as if you're controversial? How do people react when you are teaching your class on trauma and you say to people, I'm not going to give you trigger warnings. I, you know, a lot of what you've heard about trauma is wrong. Yes, people definitely treat me as controversial. I did an, an interview with the BBC once, and the interviewer said something like, my, you are a contrarian. And I said in response, well, maybe I'm a contrarian, but I'm also right, you know. I'm a scientist. Um, yeah, I'm a scientist. <laughs> and, you know, I think that it's a curious phenomenon, but when with the large, I teach a very large class in an auditorium, and the first several weeks, I think the students are quite confused. 
because I'm now saying all of these things that you came in assuming are actually not accurate. And we slowly unpack it, slowly begin talking about the research. You know, and it takes, it's a kind of an interesting phenomenon. It takes me an entire semester. But by the end of the semester, almost everybody in the class understands. They know, they, they understand what the research shows. They understand how they can now think about these events. And I'm, I'm a little bit unsure of how to move forward with this thing in the broader public because it requires a little bit of, I think, education, a little schooling on this, on this idea. And it, you know, it's gotten quite far from reality in a sense, if I can use that's a kind of extreme way to put it. You know, a lot of the ideas out there are, are almost a return to the 19th century, where secret repressed things was a very common idea in the 19th century. And it never had any credence, and it still doesn't. It never had any biological or psychological reality. So it's a counterweight to this very, very forceful momentum of these, these ideas that everybody's traumatized, that we're carrying around hidden traumas. Yeah, I'm left thinking, George, Doug and I have been part of this movement for schools where back, you know, not too long ago, maybe like 10 years ago, our schools were filled with messages of overcoming adversity and optimism. And we largely serve kids who are underserved and have tons of obstacles. Like there's, there's no shortage of places to point in terms of the amount of trauma that's existed in their lives or the amount of obstacles that they have that others don't have. And we emphasize back then overcoming those adversity, the, the success story, working hard, controlling what you control. Many of the messages of your book, we're in the midst now of a change where people are advocating for these very same schools, in some cases, transitioning them to schools that emphasize the obstacle, not overcoming the obstacle. And as I'm listening to you, this is less question than me just kind of talking out loud as I'm hearing you. It makes me a little concerned because sometimes often people are correct. Like when people talk about, for instance, structural racism, I think there are some people who get the history wrong, but largely I'm often with people when they say, hey, there are all these obstacles out there that our kids are enduring that others don't have. But I think what they get wrong is, well, then you can't just tell them the obstacle exists. Just telling them that often has the opposite effect that you think it does. It actually reinforces the obstacle. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, and, and what to do about it is a tricky problem. I mean, I, I recall a situation when, when my kids were smaller and so they were in the system um, and some of the teachers and either knew me or knew of me or knew, you know, my wife or I as parents. And in one situation, a child had lost one of his parents in, over the summer. And they were, the kids were coming back in the fall. And that instructor, the teacher asked if she could talk with me about it and was confused, completely confused. What do I do in this situation? And I agreed to talk with her and, you know, just as a, as a, as a person, not as a necessarily a mental health expert. And I basically said, maybe you don't do anything. You know, the child probably, you don't know, I would bet, but it's not 100% sure that the child doesn't want to be singled out. They want to be able to go back to school and be a normal kid, right? So doing anything special, any kind of having the class all process it together, that's going to probably make that kid feel like an outcast like the, or make them feel diminished. And if they, you know, and I don't know that and you don't know that, but let's not assume that that's the case, that we, we want it, that we need to engage in some sort of major focus on this event. And it's based on the, the assumption that, that I think the teacher's assumption that we have to, that we have to, you know, process the event and have everybody think about it together is based on the idea that, that we're fundamentally weak. You know, we're fundamentally, that the child is broken and that the child is, um, you know, going to need to deal with it and that the students in the class will also need to deal with it. And, you know, this has been happening since the beginning of time, That's, that people lose other people and, you know, we'll just keep moving on. George, I, I might be going out on a limb here, but it's almost gaslighting to say to people, you're not weak if you seek help. And they're telling you, hey, like, it's, you're not weak. You're not weak. You're not weak to acknowledge this, 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 and this. But as you're describing... The premise of a lot of the discussion is that we are weak and we can overcome these things. I don't know if this is a controversial thing to say, but... No, I don't think it's going out on a limb. And in fact, I have a colleague who writes and studies gaslighting who would probably agree with you completely. And basically, I think that the idea here is when you tell someone they're not weak if they seek help, you're kind of telling them that they are weak. You're defining them as weak. You're weak, and so it's okay if you seek help rather than, you know, if, if someone needs help, if they're inquiring about help or they feel that they need help, 
then you say, yeah, here's where help can be found. And we know a lot, actually, about what helps people who have been traumatized. There's pretty good data, right? There's pretty good evidence for what works and what doesn't. So I think, you know, the, the, the world went through this um, in the broader sense with something called uh, critical incident stress debriefing or stress debriefing. And that was a phenomenon that happened. It arose out of the idea in the, God, I don't know when this was, the 70s or the 80s, that people in high stress high uh, exposure situations like ambulance drivers, you know, first responders, they see a lot of blood and guts and a lot of horrible things in death. So maybe they would benefit from getting together once a month and debriefing, talking to each other about what's going on. And there's some truth in that. And I don't know if it, there was ever any concrete evidence that it really worked, but there was a kind of an assumption that it was helpful. And that then led to this idea that, well, maybe we should export this for everybody. And it led to the idea that when something bad happens, a team of mental health professionals would descend upon the scene and try to offer everybody a, a, a brief little session. And sometimes people were required to do that. And I know people who have been, you know, who were in that game at the time and required to do this. And that the research began to come in and showed, lo and behold, that it was not helping. And in many cases, it made people worse. It actually, people who did, who were, got this kind of helpful debriefing, were worse than people who didn't, basically. And so, you know, we, we, that eventually sort of run, ran its course and it doesn't happen anymore because the evidence is clear. But so it's the same kind of phenomenon now that, you know, there's a kind of a, making a comeback in some indirect ways. It's a cousin of the blame your parents school of psychology where I feel like there's like <laughs> this, there's this tendency to get you on the couch and be like, all right, all roads lead to your parents. And it's it almost has led to this weird lack of gratitude for parents now. I like there's a lot of people in my generation who've been I don't know who they're talking to all the time, but every conversation needs to be your parents are somehow responsible for something. And I'm like, yes, it's true. I feel like yeah. we've gone the opposite yeah. direction. Yeah. But you know, and I may be going out on a limb and telling this story, but I was invited once to one of my children's schools. To was sort of bring your your parent to school one day, and everyone could ask me about what I do for a living. And during that time, it was, it was an hour and a half, or it was during one class, or some you know whatever the periods are designated in school. And while I was speaking, children kept coming and going. You know, and an, a, an adult or a teaching assistant or somebody would come in and you know tap them on the shoulder and motion, and they would leave the room with that person. And then another one would go, and another one would come back. And afterwards, I said what was going on? Why were all the children coming and going so frequently? And they were all going to their special sessions for their special difficulties. They all, all these kids had, and, and these were, this is a pretty high functioning school, right? It's in Manhattan and it was a public school, but it was a good public school. And, you know, people, the kids were all designated as having these deficits. George, here's a secret, George. Here's a secret. Let me, you know, let, me, let me let you in on a little secret. And you're particularly hitting on something in, in the affluent parts of Manhattan because ProPublica did a really good investigation of this a couple of weeks ago. For some reason, there happen to be way more special needs in the more affluent schools. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Shocking. A whole other podcast. But they particularly, the neighborhood you're talking about is ground zero for this. We're spending yeah. a lot of money on There's so-called a kind special of needs. Yeah. There's a great irony in that, really, because kids in, in the lower income districts are the ones with the needs, you know, Bingo. The, the yeah. concrete needs. Yeah. Well, ProPublica talked about that. So I'll, I'll send you this article afterwards. It's pretty expansive, really good reporting by them. I just want to have, have one last question, if you don't mind. It's uh, hopefully it's a relatively quick one. I just before we do that, I just want to reiterate how profoundly useful I found your book, The End of Trauma. I think it's, oh, thank you so it's much. spectacular. Thank you. And I've been recommending it to every educator that I come across. And so I want to recommend it to listeners. But I was wondering if you could just sort of, I'm going to give you the beginning of a sentence and I just would love to ask you to complete it, especially because you were talking about being in classrooms and people asking your advice and trauma, because people use the phrase trauma informed now. And I feel like every time I hear that phrase, I cringe a little bit because it's often like, this is the justification for any, any range of things. I, I think it's a very dangerous idea. Trauma-informed care. First of all, it's lay people presuming that they can diagnose trauma yeah. and telling, often telling people that they're traumatized, which I think you've established can often be counterproductive. Yeah. But let's just take that phrase. Trauma-informed classrooms are... Dangerous. That was a shorter answer than I was expecting. Yeah, no, I, I'm actually going to write a paper. It's on my list of things to do when I get done doing the other things I do. I want to write a, a paper 
called trauma-informed care is dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's because all the things you said, it, it asks people, even professionals, even mental health professionals, mm-hmm. the assumption is that people coming in- Who I think you establish in the book can't diagnose consistently whether someone has trauma. No. Right. Like, and yeah. the, the, one of the major government funding organizations, I can't remember the, the acronym now, but they're, they're on their website, they, they suggest that everybody use trauma-informed care and they define it as people, you may be seeing people, two mental health professionals- you may be seeing people who have previous traumas that they don't want to talk about or, un- or are unaware of. And both of those things are probably wrong. First of all, people don't have previous traumas that they're unaware of. If they did, they, people, when, as You'd I know. said before, <laughs> when people are traumatized in the past, they don't forget. And the people who have been traumatized for a long time, they want to talk about it. They want to be done with it. The only people who want to hold on to traumas are the people who aren't really traumatized because it's a kind of a handy, it's a place to hang your problems. It's an explanation that's not your fault. I mean, that's cynical in a way, but I think it's quite, there's a lot of credence to it. But really, people who've been traumatized, they want to tell you about it and they want to get past it as best they can. Well, George, this is super illuminating. Point us in the direction of how our audience can find your work. And, you know, we we know about your book, uh, you know, best place to find it. Any other things you're working on that you want to make our audience aware of? Yeah, sure. I have a, a website that's part of my lab at, at, at Columbia University. If anyone can find a way to that, it's publicly available. So if you just Google me and you ultimately will come up with that website from my lab, it's called the Lost Trauma and Emotion Lab. And on that website are um, links to a lot of the papers we've done that people can download. The book is available really anywhere, online and in stores. What I'm working on now, I'm very excited about actually. So we've talked a little bit about flexibility. And I'm, I'm now, we've collected enough data and I've tried it out enough that I'm convinced that flexibility, what I call regulatory flexibility, these terms we, we talked about today, the flexibility mindset, something called the flexibility sequence, that's how resilient people are resilient. And I think it would help everybody to know more about that, only just to know even what they're doing. And resilient people may not even know they're doing this, but it also is a way to shore it up, to help us if we have weaknesses. And so I'm developing a training in flexibility. I've never done that in my, in my life. I've never done it in my career because I'm not, it's not the thing I do. I do research. But enough people have asked about this when I give public lectures and I think, so I, of course, I'll do it like a scientist. I will, I will study it as well. And I'll show that it works. I'll collect data. But we're developing a training for all kinds of different audiences, for the general public and for a more professional audience or for, for, for more clinical populations or just people who want to be healthier. And the thing is about when something really bad happens to us, it's not easy to think clearly about how to get through it. It's, it's work. It's more work. The more that we, uh, we know about how this works before something happens, the more we know what our tools are, what we're good at, what we're not good at, the better we will be able to manage an event when it happens next. So that's a key part of it. All right, George. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Sure. My pleasure. Nice to talk with you both.